I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Emmett Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back again, everyone. We have a characteristically wide-ranging show for you today. So Rachel will kick us off with a topic that she has been tweeting away on quite vociferously, which is the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, so-called having an emphasis there. That is a debate currently raging on the Hill. Then we'll kick it over to Ben for the latest on yet another special counsel, another special counsel for President Trump. Maybe he's used to it by now. Maybe he's not. Emily will then talk about China staffing up their government with high-tech experts, what it means for the U.S. national interest, national security, and all of that. And I will take us home on a slightly more kind of cultural, less overtly political note, just kind of some commentary on the World Cup going to a very different kind of country, the tiny Gulf Emirate of Qatar. But Rachel, why don't we kick it over to you to start us off? So, yes, I've been on a Twitter storm on the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which um, is moving forward in the Senate. Before the Senate left for Thanksgiving recess, uh, they approved cloture on the motion to proceed, which is sort of the first step in passing a bill in the Senate on what is called the Respect for Marriage Act, which is being sold as a bill which, quote unquote, codifies uh you know, gay marriage uh, into our laws. But if you actually look at the bill, it actually doesn't do that at all. It, it, as a legal matter, all it does is sort of repeal the last vestiges of um, DOMA, uh, which is sort of allowed states to make their own determinations on gay marriage that a law passed in 1996. And it was that law was basically defanged by passage of, of Obergefell anyway. Um, and so this this bill, all it does is sort of virtue signal in that direction. Well, and this is sort of the insidious part, allowing a private right of action to enforce uh, Obergefell. So it opens up a whole sweeping line of litigation uh, against any institution or individual seen as, you know, being hostile in some way to same-sex marriage as outlined in Obergefell. Now, be there seems to be this view among the conservative movement and some libertarians that because the bill contains the phrase religious liberty, that somehow it protects uh, the right of religious liberty under this law. And I want to be very clear that it does not do that at all. Um, it merely headpats the notion of religious liberty. It says, oh, well, the First Amendment should protect you and, and you know, that should be enough. When in reality, what this bill will do, the short version, is it will make Jack Phillips out of everyone everyone with traditional views on um, on marriage. And what I mean by that is, you know, J Jack Phillips, you will remember from Masterpiece Cakes, you know, didn't want to bake the cake. This has now become a meme, right? For a same-sex couple, Hel has held his has had his rights upheld by the Supreme Court, but does not have religious liberty uh, as it is meaningfully understood in America, right? He is in perpetual litigation. That litigation is specifically designed to bankrupt and destroy him and that is what he has as religious liberty, right? That is the future that is coming if this bill passes. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are credible arguments made by Roger Severino at Heritage and others who say, look, the IRS is going to interpret this in a very specific way. They will say, oh, Congress now, you know, is taking this position. We will go after the tax exempt status of groups like churches or nonprofits that have traditional views on marriage. Because as, as we all know, churches do more than just marriage. 
right? The Catholic Church in particular, I raise that just as one example, uh, provides adoption services and homeless services and foster care and all these things. Uh, they run hospitals. And all of these institutions are now subject to lawsuit uh, and harassment by the IRS and private litigants if this bill were to pass. Now, Mike Lee has offered an amendment that would specifically protect these institutions and individuals. Um, if the bill, as its proponents claim, already protects religious liberty, then they should have no problem adopting this amendment. However, he has been stymied at every attempt um, to offer this amendment, and it remains to be seen if it will even get a vote on the on the Senate floor. So I raise this because, you know, it's it's been a point of, of contention and misunderstanding, even among the conservative and libertarian movement, um, that this bill, you know, some codifies uh, gay marriage in some way, which it doesn't, or that it protects religious liberty, which it also doesn't. So I kind of throw it open to the group for your comments or reflections on what's going on here, because this is a dangerous bill that I think undermines um, the concept of religious liberty. Um, you know, you can say people have it de jure, but de facto they do not. And I think this is what the movement needs to get its head around. So there's a, there's a lot wrong with this bill. And Rachel, thank you for your you're tweeting, and I can only imagine kind of behind the scenes work as well to try to make this bill die. It's 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 really, really bad. And it's bad for a lot of reasons. First of all, I kind of reject the entire premise that when we kind of talk about this particular issue, we immediately hop into the defensive posture of religious liberty. I recognize that the Supreme Court in Obergefell, you know, purported to claim that, you know, that that marriage is what it is. But, you know, the problem that the American right made, and, uh, you know, we largely lost this issue, of course, kind of politically and ultimately jurisprudentially at the Supreme Court of the past decade, that we had so few people willing to actually make the affirmative positive case for what marriage is, as the permanent exclusive monogamous union of one man and one woman and so forth. And the very first thing that this bill does, by obvious dint of kind of a national codification, is that it, it bestows con the in in congressional imprimatur of legitimacy upon that sole and exclusive definition of marriage. This is, a, this is exactly the antithesis of what Justice Alito said in his Obergefell dissent. I mean, in, in his dissent, he very presciently said in Obergefell that those who hold to more traditional views will ultimately be, you know, tarred and you know, lambasted as sexist, racist, bigot, homophobes, and so forth. And that, that's quite literally what this bill actually does. Secondary, obviously, on the religious liberty point, what Rachel says is totally accurate. This is going to make Jack feel upset for everyone. Um, I would commend to the listeners and viewers of this show, the Heritage Foundation put out a really nice, uh, very brief, like 90 to 100 second video uh, featuring Rabbi Yaakov Menken of Coalition for Jewish Values, who kind of just in very crisp form explains why the private cause of action is so deleterious, is so ultimately harmful to this bill. The third and final thing that is just so deeply cynical, but is nonetheless therefore characteristic of typical kind of Democratic Party Capitol Hill strategy, is what they have done is they have lumped together not just a codification of homosexual marriage in Obergefell, but also interracial marriage. I mean, and, and what they're doing there, they are trying to kind of fear monger and scare people into thinking that Loving versus Virginia, which is the 1967 case that struck down the various state level, um, you know, Jim Crow era bans on interracial marriage. The Democrats are trying to make the American people think that that is somehow in jeopardy with kind of the fig leaf of maybe a citation to Justice Thomas's concurrence in the Dobbs decision, which actually didn't even 
talk about Loving because Loving was an equal protection clause case, not a substantive due process case like a Griswold or anything like that. So it's also profoundly cynical. There is not a legislator in America right now at the state or federal level who would ever in a million years vote to try to ban interracial marriage, for God's sake. So that part of this is just so sordid and awful and, and frankly just stinks of the worst kind of inside baseball DC politics. So I really hope this bill is is defeated. But you know, if I want the viewers to take away kind of one point, at least from my commentary on this, it is let's not immediately dive into the religious liberty discussion. Let's not necessarily forsake the affirmative case for marriage as one man and one woman permanent exclusive monogamous, because that actually is the correct and best definition of marriage for families, for society, and for the country at large. Yeah, uh, it was interesting to see so many senators, Republican senators, jump on this bill really quickly. And folks made a good point that you just get routed in elections and immediately kind of sell out your base. Um, but what's interesting is that they didn't seem to like there was this real belief and you, you saw it in the way Tom Tillis was speaking that nothing was wrong, that there were no religious liberty concerns about this bill whatsoever because it had the clause. Andrew Sullivan wrote a long, uh, his his weekly newsletter had an extended um, criticism of conservatives, including Rachel by name, by the way, that um, were saying the, the bill posed a threat to religious liberty. And he was basically like, this is stupid fear mongering because it's right there. You can read the text of the bill and it says it will not encroach on your religious liberty. And it's like, well, you dumb mouth breathing MAGA crazies. How stupid could you be? This is fine. Um, and I, that was the tone that I think really permeated the discussion over the course of the last week. And that's the kind of thing that gives Republican senators the ammunition to sell out their base, right? So it's it's that's like the real problem is like we have a horrific media and Republican senators are completely responsive to it. The the sort of left activist media to the point where you can't actually pass um, decent legislation, protective legislation, substantive legislation that they probably in private would tell you they do want to protect religious liberty. Some of them not. Uh, some of them certainly not. Uh, but others would say, uh, well, you know, my constituents would be really upset about that if they knew it was true. It's you can't you have to stop taking your cues from the media and the left's activist class um, because that's not representative of America and it's not representative of, of the truth. Yeah, so I think everyone has kind of hit on the merits of this issue uh, in the right way. And I think the notion that we're all Jack Phillips now is is absolutely a, a right framework in which to look at the ultimate impact of this bill should it ultimately pass. I, I would just point out here the absurdity of the politics. We just had, and emphasize this point again, we just had an election. It's not like this is the kind of vote that might cost someone their seat or might give the perception that it might cost them their seat. We just had the elections and you still have 12 Republicans who are siding with the Democrats on this. And I can't, and I've talked about this, I've emphasized this again and again, you know, the question that Republicans ought to ask themselves always is, what would a Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer do? Were they in my shoes? I can't think of an equivalent sort of bill put forth at a time like this by Republicans where you get 12 Democrats coming along to help facilitate something that is obviously going to punish their own base. <clears throat> it simply, it defies reality to think that Democrats would ever be in that position, put themselves in that position, side with the opposition, 
to punish their own base. So this gets to a question, is the Republican Party the stupid party, the evil party, or both, I guess, in this scenario? At least this, you know, 24% approximately of Republican senators who are helping grease the skids to pass this bill through ultimately. So, you know, thank God Mike Lee has that amendment out there. We'll see ultimately if it ultimately gets a vote or not and where people come out on that vote. But I but I just point out that this gives ammunition to and I think fully justifies the idea that Republicans or a decent percentage of Republicans in Washington are controlled opposition. And it's incumbent upon the voters to vote the bums out. That's the only way we get around this ultimately. Uh, so with that, I guess we'll transition back to me. Uh, and of course, you know, this segment is about the special counsel, which has just been appointed to continue the pursuit of Donald Trump. But I guess the first point that we ought to make is Donald Trump is running. I don't know if when we recorded the last episode, uh, that was actually official. I think we did so on Tuesday of last week before the formal announcement. So Don the timeline is Donald Trump announces he's running for president, as was expected last Tuesday. We're recording this Tuesday, three days subsequent to the announcement, then the Biden Justice Department under moderate, impartial, independent Merrick Garland appoints a special counsel to handle two ongoing investigations that center on Trump. And looking at the statement here that Garland put out in announcing the appointment, he says that the, the first investigation that will be continued, picked up by the special counsel, concerns whether any person or entity unlawfully interfered with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election or the certification of the Electoral College vote held on or about January 6, 2021. And the second is the ongoing investigation involving classified documents and other presidential records, as well as the possible obstruction of that investigation, referenced and described in court filing submitted in a pending matter in the Southern District of Florida. So what are actually the two cases being pursued here? One of them concerns January 6th and the manner essentially in which Trump and those around him contested the election. And two is effectively a document dispute. By the way, as the Washington Post stenographers for the security apparatus themselves acknowledged right after the election, when there were leaks by federal prosecutors, attorneys, basically saying this was all actually essentially about Trump wanting to hold on to mementos from his presidency, not that this involved some nefarious plots to sell secrets to foreign adversaries or the like. So contesting an election and a document dispute. These close calls at best, I guess, of legal cases with the most novel kinds of theories, unprecedented really in the history of the pursuit of former presidents, let alone current presidential candidates. And these are the two cases that the Justice Department continues to pursue now under a special counsel. So there are any number of aspects around the appointment of the special counsel that I think are significant. And I'll point out a few of them. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know, what is the ultimate significance of the special counsel, if any, or is this just a continuation of what we already knew, which is an attempted legal railroading of a assumed presidential candidate and now presidential candidate. So the first is obviously that the third world nature of this, like what has been actually normalized here is you have a president pursuing criminal charges against his predecessor and present challenger. This is an extension, of course, of the January 6th committee itself. Jack Smith, the prosecutor, will pick up the baton from that committee and potentially be able to protect that committee's work, by the way, by having access to the depositions and testimony and the like associated with it. And of course, it's carried out by a law enforcement apparatus that we know has been, as we've talked about ad nauseum here, hyper-politicized and weaponized to the nth degree against its opponents. 
again, you've got the dubious grounds on which this pursuit is based to show me the man and I'll show you the crime kind of aspect of it. You have Attorney General Garland, who's artfully trying to insulate himself here from an inherently hyper-political prosecution that his DOJ initiated in the first place and that he ultimately calls the final shots on. All while, by the way, of course, the president's son faces no such special counsel in the run up to 2024. We have the fact that the special counsel himself has a checkered record of pursuing Republicans, including governor, former governor Bob McDonald in Virginia, where his case was ultimately overturned nine to nothing by the Supreme Court, as well as helping facilitate the IRS targeting of conservative groups via Lois Lerner uh, back in the aughts. By the way, his wife also, as we've recently found out, was a producer on Michelle Obama documentary and has contributed to Joe Biden. So completely independent and impartial here. And then obviously there's the way this this prosecution or persecution is going to impact not only the 2024 presidential election, Trump's prospects and the field itself and the cloud of controversy that's going to surround basically everything around the GOP primary process. But then, of course, there's the fact that congressional Republicans themselves may be sidelined as a consequence of the special counsel's powers because he's investigating everything and everyone and their mother around January 6th. So they could be sidelined in the run up to 2024 and targeted as well. And all of this, of course, will distract from the oversight efforts into the Biden administration and its myriad misdeeds, corruption and lawlessness in just the first two years. So I've laid out a whole raft of issues around this special counsel. I'm curious what you all think are the most salient points around it. How significant is this? Is this kind of the continuation of the status quo? Uh, or are there real major issues around this special counsel that haven't been examined that ought to be in the initial run-up of, of commentary around it? You know, I think the what's going on here is simply, it, it's just amazing in the relentlessness, I guess is how I'll say it, the Democrats have to punish Donald Trump. If you look at the January 6th law committee, you look at the polling around it, they convinced no one, right? If you, despite hiring like a cable news executive to, to, to design their hearings and hosting them in primetime television, which I've never seen before, by the way, a, a congressional committee demanding primetime hearing time, they can, they convinced no one who wasn't already convinced about Trump that he did something, you know, that that this reached the level of, you know, whatever they were describing, treason or whatever. So since January 6th committee failed, now we are going to take that effort and entrench it in our institution. And we will now use the Department of Justice to do to try and do what the, the select committee failed. And what's amazing about this is that I even think that in the base of this country, right, there are people that hate Donald Trump it's still a minority of people that want to see him in jail. And the Department of Justice is going to shatter any myth of neutrality. And they are going to, to do this, right? I think the end game here is obviously the indictment of Donald Trump. And in the process, it will be the indictment of the sitting president's chief political rival. And I don't know that how we come back from that. For the people that want to save democracy, right? How do you come back from this kind of junta-esque action. You know, Inez made a point, I don't even remember, several weeks ago that, or maybe in she, she wrote it in the sense that we tolerate a baseline level of corruption from our political leaders, right? We tolerate the Clintons. We tolerate, you know, a little bit of, you know, here and there. 
And we do that because we are not a country that tolerates putting or, or wants to become a country where we put our political leaders in jail, right? There's a certain, you know, and, and I would argue that what Trump is being accused of with relation to documents is that baseline, right? I don't think that there was some grand conspiracy here. You know, at best, it was a disorganized mess and you could accuse him of not handling documents correctly in that way. But to 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 put to to try and do what we're doing here is, I think more of a threat to the legitimacy of the United States as a self-sustaining government than anything that we've seen in the last fifty years. Wow. So, um, I, I, I honestly hard to disagree with that. Um, I, I guess I have three fairly quick points to make. I want to make sure Emily has time to weigh in here. My first point is that the appointment of the special counsel is only further corroboration of what was the obvious takeaway from the Mar-a-Lago raid itself in August, which is that this DOJ has every intent to actually indict President Donald Trump. I think a lot of us thought it was maybe a jump ball, a 50-50 proposition of sorts before the Mar-a-Lago raid. Um, after that, it seemed like it was obvious. This, this only further corroborates that. The only question at this point probably is when it comes and what underlying fig leaf they used to issue that indictment. The second point that I want to make, and I actually made the same point in my column after the Mar-a-Lago raid, is if I am trying to kind of think what Merrick Garland and the very politicized DOJ is thinking with both the Mar-a-Lago raid and this, I think, and I'm not the first person who, said, who speculated this, I would guess that they are trying to kind of incite or foment, you might say, a rally around the flag effect because they probably think that since they beat President Trump in 2020, he is probably the most easily beatable candidate for them in 2024. Um, you know, I, I think people can agree or disagree with that. We'll, we'll talk about all the 2024 stuff in future shows, I'm sure. We're not going to talk about it right now. I think that's probably at least one element of what Merrick Garland and the DOJ are thinking here is trying to kind of get a rally around the flag and get Republicans to rally around Donald Trump. The final quick point I want to make here is, you know, I, I just cringe so much at this point when I see these totally boilerplate kind of dog-eared statements from various Republican candidates just lamenting, complaining about the politicized nature of the Department of Justice, you know, wither the rule of law, wither neutrality. Guys, wake up. I mean, come on. This is just like a basic element, I think, at this point of, of you know, proverbially speaking, knowing what time it is. The only relevant question is whether our side is going to prudentially respond in escalatory tit-for-tat fashion in an attempt to rebound the pendulum. That is the only relevant question. Stop bitching, if I'm allowed to say in this podcast, about the current lamentable state of things. I, the small point that I want to make is that it just it, picking up on, uh, I think it was Rachel who said this happened after the J6 committee failed to change public opinion. Well, the J6 committee um, was really what happened after the special counsel failed <laughs> with Robert Mueller to uh, remove Trump from power. It's like time and time and again, and they're not quiet about this. They basically say it aloud. They want this to be the thing that disqualifies Donald Trump for president. So it's not to say that there aren't arguments against the way Trump conducted himself on January 6th. I think there are, and I've been happy to make them, and I know some of us here have been as well. But it's more, uh, the point is they're orchestrating these things intentionally and and um, without sort of substantive basis at every moment to oust somebody who is liked by a, a chunk of the American public that they just can't get over. They just cannot bring themselves to accept that they share a country with, uh, you know, the icky MAGA people. And, and Rachel kind of Rachel kind of wrote about this actually in the New York Times today, uh, the the failing New York Times today about how uh, there's this 
the thing that like really gets people um, and the big difference between Donald Trump and any other candidate is that he really appeals to people who want to put their hopes in anybody but a politician. <laughs> um, and that's always why there are these orchestrated um, attempts to unseat him. And again, it's like Peter Strzok talking about an insurance policy, right? Like that's, that's it's, it's sort of out in the open. Um, and this is just another part of that. So on that note, we will transition to China. Um, speaking of corruption, we're transitioning to China. Uh, President Joe Biden met with Xi Jinping yes, last week in Bali um, and said there's no need for a new Cold War. Uh, he said he doesn't believe China is going to invade Taiwan. He said he doesn't believe there's any imminent threat to Taiwan. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal had two interesting reports this week. The first is that China is attempting to do back-channel diplomacy through um, a uh, through a former sort of like WTO guy and a ma massively successful American businessman. Um, and the second is that China's ranks are now staffed. I have the numbers here in front of me by a huge percentage of people. This is from the, the Wall Street Journal. Again, the, their headline is China Xi stacks government with science and tech experts amid rivalry with US. They have a, a chart um, that shows the share of technocrats among full members of the CCP Central Committee. It's up to 40 percent in 2022. That's starting to compete with where it was <clears throat> in 1997 and is basically doubled from where it was in 2017 up again from she in 2012 so there's a, a conscious a conscious effort um, on the part of the Chinese to staff the CCP with people who have expertise and not just are, are, are and are not just sort of political experts and this is a debate in China as it is in, in many countries uh, um, about whether you want political people to lead you or technocrats to lead you. Um, but it is interesting that this is a concerted effort. This is something that Xi Jinping is doing deliberately um, as, you know, despite what Joe Biden says, there is a cold war on right now with China. There's there's absolutely no other way around it. Um, you know, it's, it's not the exact facsimile of the cold war with the Soviet Union, but there's just no other way around it that when all of our semiconductors are made in Taiwan um, and, and China thinks they have a claim to Taiwan and has made a lot of uh, bluster and threats about Taiwan, we have to be engaged in uh, that kind of conflict, sadly, uh, because of where poor leadership has, has gotten us to. So on that note, uh, let me send this open to the group, um, just with a, the point that there there's some movement and definitely in the American population, like we've seen the CHIPS Act as, as corrupt and full of cronyism as it was. We've seen that there's actually some reshoring happening. Um, now, that's a process that takes years. And if Xi Jinping were to attack Taiwan before that process had really played itself out, we would be in huge trouble. Um, but we have seen certain corporations biting the bullet uh, with the help of subsidies, of course. That said, there's an enormous amount of work to be done. Um, and so as Biden's interactions with Xi Jinping, with that sort of in the rearview mirror over the course of a week, um, where do you see the Biden administration going with this, the, the China relationship heading into what his, his third year in office and another election cycle? I mean, I don't know how people think about this, but I think I've said this before on, on this podcast. I think we are as a government functionally unable to take on China, we just, every time we have these interactions, I just feel like we are missing the full scope of the actual threat. 
right? It's like we tinker in one corner. And meanwhile, China is just all over the map, you know, on the other side. You know, you see already there was, I think, a report out in Axios today about how China wants to send over um, autonomous vehicles, right? They want to sell their autonomous vehicles here in, in, in the U.S., when these are huge data gathering activities, right? They're doing it for the sole purpose of just gathering data on all on, on American citizens. And, you know, our counter is, okay, well, you know, maybe we'll be the ones to make autonomous vehicles, but now we're scrambling to catch up. Um, and you see this, of course, you know, on our, the horse we all love to be on is TikTok, right? We see this again, we look at this as simply, you know, oh, China competing on our shores with a product. Well, no, it's actually state sanctioned espionage. And so I just come back to this idea that I feel like we are, as a policy matter, completely overwhelmed. Um, we are, you have to be able to sort of take on China aggressively via policy, but also economic untangling. And that is something that I really haven't seen anyone, much less the Biden administration, put their back into. So I think you need a whole of government, whole of economy approach to this, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm such a storm cloud today, but I just don't see it happening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to see that happening. Oh, no, go, go ahead, Ben. Were you going to hop in there? Uh, feel free. To go for it. I'll, I'll round us out. Okay. No, I mean, like, I, I agree with Rachel. It's very hard to see this happening. This has been kind of like a recurring late motif on this podcast, probably since this podcast launched almost two years ago now. So happy almost two-year anniversary, guys. Um, I mean, is like, how do we kind of effectuate this, this disentangling, this decoupling, delinking, whatever you want to call it, process from the People's Republic of China, and uh, no one has any easy answers to this, obviously. Uh, I mean, I, I you know, I, I think kind of some, this is not like the most like constitutionally kosher answer. It's like a con law guy will be the first to admit that, but it's probably frankly just easier to do this via some sort of kind of suite of executive orders in the next Republican administration that is China skeptical rather than getting anything meaningful through Congress. I mean, you know, Congress obviously in many ways is kind of uniquely vulnerable to kind of uh, Chinese influence peddling and lobbying and all the various kind of chamber of commerce assorted kind of corporatist Wall Street interests that have such a long-term vested interest in kind of keeping kind of this, you know, neoliberal absolutist regime whereby America and China are, are in complete and total bed together. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's an overly cynical view of the of the congressional process there. Um, but you know, I, I I do know that certainly when it comes time um, to have the 2024 discussion, that you know China has to be kind of the number one answer. By the way, um, on kind of the presidential election theme, I, I I personally thought that one of uh, President Trump's greatest shortcomings from his 2020 election was not running on the China issue enough. In fact, actually. Literally, my very first syndicated column when I first started doing these creators columns back in March 2020, it was like right, right around the time that COVID started. Um, I don't remember the title of the column, but the, the point of this column was basically urging President Trump to run on the China issue. And I, th I thought that COVID kind of gave him a very unique way to do so, obviously, the Wuhan virus, all of that stuff. But President Trump's record, um, at least as, as far as kind of the tariffs and trying to kind of rebalance some semblance of realism and not kind of starry-eyed, gazing, Pollyanna-ish uh, optimism, uh, you know, his record really stood out from his previous presidents and, you know, whoever on the right side of the aisle, whether it's him or someone else who kind of carries this torch in 2024 going forward, has to kind of take those efforts and just take it much, much further because there is simply no putting this genie back in the bottle. I think that is for sure at this point. Well, I fully agree. And 
I argued in column after column going into the 2020 race that you know, President Biden, a President Biden would be wholly compromised on China and that Trump's greatest national security and foreign policy was achievement was reorienting the ship of state against China for the first time since Nixon's opening. Um, you know, Joe Biden himself has even found it difficult to unwind some of the strongest of the Trump administration's policies, but he has certainly at the margins uh, dithered, if not rolled back in certain respects, uh, the the policies that were put forth. I, I just want to say a, a couple of things. First on this notion of no need for a Cold War. That whole line about a Cold War mentality and not wanting to foster, foment a Cold War mentality is speaking essentially in Chinese Communist Party propagandist tongue. All of the CCP mouthpieces if you look in their rags, talk about not wanting to have a Cold War mentality, that too many Americans have a Cold War mentality. But obviously, they have been engaged, as I've argued before, in a hot war by other means for years, if not decades. So the fact that the president essentially concedes their narrative, I think, tells you a lot of what you need to know about his administration and why the prospects are so bleak for actually countering China at minimum for the next couple of years. Uh, another thing, obviously, is that the administration talks about, you know, we're going to compete in some areas, we're going to cooperate in other areas. But cooperation is precisely what has fueled the Chinese Communist Party's rise. It allows them to co-opt our elites, to coerce, to pilfer, to subvert our processes. So the very nature of the relationship itself is corrupting. And to the extent an administration is talking about cooperation, that tells you that they're willing to continue to foster and foment that co corruption. Um, you know, uh, on the, the more narrower topic of the Chinese Communist Party promoting those in the STEM areas, essentially, to areas of power, uh, on the one hand, you know, the notion of enlightened uh, scientific technocrats running things and the ultimate impacts of central planning, uh, obviously, economics tells us generally that that fails. But and a market oriented process versus that sort of central planning process usually will do better, should do better ultimately. But I think what we have is we don't even have a market oriented process to counter them. We are dithering at the margins, even if they're centrally planning and technocratic with all the deficiencies and the corruption baked into it. The fact that they are oriented towards dominating the next generation technologies and making us essentially a secondary power and subservient in many ways, I think that ultimately loses versus the central planner to the extent we don't have any sort of competing uh, counter battle plan, so to speak. Um, last but not least, you know, I think there's a question of what we see in the next two years. Does Xi Jinping invade Taiwan because he thinks that he'll never have a better opportunity than with Joe Biden in the office? Or does he think that Biden and potentially whoever would succeed him on the Democrat side are so weak that it is more beneficial not to invade and potentially upset the apple cart because China is doing so much better relatively uh, under Democrat rule. I think that's something worth playing out. But I certainly see no pushback from this administration over the next two years, except maybe some rhetoric in the run up to an election, because the American people are hawkish towards communist China and are aware of its depredations. All right. So from one troubling country to another, I guess there'll be a transition for the day. Um, let's talk about the World Cup in the very tiny and very wealthy uh, Gulf Emirate of Qatar. 
so, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge soccer fan. I'm probably a bigger soccer fan, I guess, than the median American that's working off a relatively low kind of um, base baseline level. Um, the U.S. has started its World Cup in characteristically disappointing fashion with a 1-1 draw with Wales. We will see if the U.S. can advance out of, out, out of their group. But the biggest question surrounding this World Cup is not actually pertaining to any of the games on the field or the or the countries that are competing or anything, but is the mere fact that this World Cup is actually being hosted in the Emirate of Qatar in the first place. So Qatar is a tiny country. It is roughly the size of the state of Connecticut. And when it won its bid from FIFA to host this World Cup back in 2010, immediately I think anyone who even like remotely had their end who had their antennae kind of fixed to the the role that Qatar plays on the on the global stage, both behind the scenes and public facing, many immediately suspected that there was probably some sort of bribery or skullduggery or some sort of kind of uh, bad stuff happening there. And sure enough, subsequent investigations have demonstrated, have revealed that I think it is 18 of FIFA's 24 uh, members on their executive authority board, Supreme Council, whatever they call their kind of uh, ultimate decision-making authority, 18 to 24 members have been subsequently kind of implicated or investigated for, for bribery. So that is a very fancy way of saying that Qatar bribed their way to host this World Cup. Um, Qatar also invested $220 billion, $220 billion just to build eight new stadiums from scratch. Again, this is a country the size of Connecticut. They do not exactly have or did not have the infrastructure in place to host a global sporting event of this magnitude. They built these stadiums, they built new hotels, they even built a brand new city or two, if I am not mistaken, and they did so quite literally on the backs of indentured servants, of, of migrant workers from countries like Nepal, India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, countries like that. And while the estimates vary, uh, we can safely say that at least 6,000, possibly upwards of you know maybe eight to 10,000 of these workers died, died building the, the these extraordinarily kind of uh, Sunni Islamist elites stadiums, these playthings for them in the, you know, 110, 120 degree brutal kind of Arab summers. This tournament, of course, not being played in the summer because the players get a little bit of respite, but apparently the workers who did so did not. Qatar, most relevant to the point, is a profoundly troubling country. And it, and it is not necessarily a profoundly troubling country for the reasons that kind of Western neoliberals are now freaking out about it. I mean, you know, you can criticize Qatar all you want on kind of you know, rainbow LGBT kind of uh, human rights grounds, women driving, all that stuff. But those concerns also kind of pertain to, you know, most other countries in the region, Saudis and so forth. But rather what makes Qatar uniquely, uniquely terrible is the fact that unlike most of America's other kind of even Arab allies in the region, countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Qatar has not reformed its view of Islamism and Sunni Jihad at all. Qatar is the world's number one bankroller of the Muslim Brotherhood. To this day, they are the funders of Hamas. Uh, Israel lets Qatar make those payments. It's a little bit of a complicated song and dance how that works. But uh, all, the, all the Hamas elites have their penthouse apartments in Doha, Qatar. Qatar also funds and runs the Al Jazeera network, with, which basically blasts Islamist propaganda all throughout the Middle East. In June 2017, one month after he returned from his first international trip to Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, actually, the Saudis and the Emiratis announced that they were going to effectively boycott and kind of issue a, a literal land embargo on Qatar. And initially, President Trump, to his credit, actually supported the Saudis and Emiratis. He was subsequently talked out of doing so by Rex Tillerson and kind of the foreign policy establishment, the blob, more generally speaking there. 
And, you know, finally, finally, now you see some of kind of these blue checked liberals, uh, you know, talking about why did Qatar, which has this, you know, horrible record kind of host these games. They're primarily doing so again on kind of LGBT kind of rainbow grounds. I mean, there was this whole controversy then a few days ago about how the U.S. and various other countries, some of their players are going to wear these rainbow armbands to kind of protest uh, Qatar's treatment of homosexuality. FIFA basically said, if you do so, you will get automatically yellow carded in the game, which is a big penalty for those of you who don't know soccer lingo at all. So they all kind of back down from that. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not really building up to a grand point here. I guess my, I guess my point though is that I hope, if nothing else, that people start talking about the role that Qatar plays and 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 the and the disproportionately high role that this country has. It's a tiny, tiny country, but their influence peddling operations in the West are arguably second to none. They fund the crap out of universities like Georgetown, Texas A&M. Through Al Jazeera, they are incredibly influential, and they're influential in a very, very, very bad way. So I'm kind of just I'll happy to throw throw it open on that note. Ben, I know that you've specifically done a lot on Qatar in the past, so I don't know if you have thoughts on this. Yeah, so I think at, at the highest level, one point that I'd make is that having this World Cup in Qatar or Qatar, you know, heard it pronounced both ways. I'm going to go with Qatar for purpose of this conversation. Uh, having this World Cup in Qatar, according to rules, which, by the way, essentially are in accord with Sharia, and it's a Sharia Islamic law-based regime in Qatar, uh, is kind of the ultimate in influence operation and information operation to some extent. It legitimizes that regime. It causes others from around the world to submit to its strictures. Uh, it reveals the West in its utter hypocrisy and decadence, how cheap and fake the woke principles really are when push comes to shove. Obviously, same thing when you have Olympic Games in China and beyond. Uh, so I think it's an embarrassment for the West. And from Qatar's perspective, it sort of, sort of reflects an embarrassment of riches and also the soft power that they're able to exert over the rest of the world. Uh, one thing I, I don't know, I don't recall if you mentioned, Josh, but the, the largest U.S. military base in the Middle East is in Qatar. And that speaks to another aspect of this, which is that this is sort of the quintessential shrewd Islamist regime that plays every side uh, to enrich and empower itself. So on the one hand, it is an Islamist Sharia-based regime that protects and promotes the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the tip of the Sunni Islamist spear from which pretty much all of the Sunni jihadist groups come from. But at the same time, it acts as if it's a partner or an ally with the United States. And this is the way that relatively smaller and less powerful ultimate adversaries play each side against each other, depending on who the strong course is at a given time, and to enrich and empower themselves, but ultimately to promote uh, a worldview and ultimately policies and groups that are antithetical to our own. So I think it's worth emphasizing that. And the last point I'll make just generally is, it always sickens me that we have a tendency to legitimize these regimes via sports. And I don't really necessarily have, you know, what the answer to it is when you're dealing with these international games, if you just boycott every single uh, adversarial or repugnant or anti-American regime, or if it's better to just win and participate in each one of these. Um, but I, I don't have a great answer for it. But it does. I do find it to be repeatedly troubling the fact that we legitimize 
these regimes in effect by participating in the games that they host according to their rules. And the last point I'll make is that Qatar is truly a don't say gay regime. And I don't see liberals up in arms about it. So-called liberals, illiberals up in arms about it. Yeah, this is always the problem, right? They only just want to call out stuff here while continuing to let their movie stars and movies be filmed in places like Qatar, which are actually don't say gay venues, as Ben points out. Um, the only thing I have to add is is that like there's Qatar and then there's also the corruption of FIFA, which allowed this game to be played there in the first place. Like there is I, I have a hard time imagining you know, a, a less hospitable venue to a sporting event than the middle of the desert. Um, and you also see this, uh, I think, factor in the accounts we're hearing of how many people died while trying to build the infrastructure necessary for this tournament to take place. So I just think there's corruption on literally every side of this story. Yeah. I, and, you know, the the sort of challenge of globalism in general is uh, doing business or or needing to negotiate with people that are in you know enormously powerful positions, nations that are in enormously powerful positions, um, but needing to sort of have a, a a relationship with them because in the age of nuclear weapons, in the age of you know high tech terrorism, um, we all kind of share a border at any given moment, and so it creates like impossible challenges. But where it's gone, I think, off the rails with the sort of um, neoliberal establishment is the just insufferable posturing. Well, half of them are on the payroll of Qatar, making tons of money. Um, if you look up Qatar in the Farah database, you just enjoy. Um, it'll make you sick to your stomach it, how much money people are making off of them. Um, and people who like to posture and, and, and uh, just absolutely lecture the rest of us constantly about um, morality here in the United States. So it just, that's what's kind of galling and the level of like human sacrifice that went into a World Cup tournament. Um, I mean, it should be a moment for literally everyone to pause and think about um, just sort of where we're letting technology and materialism um, take us to, because it's, it's you know, it, it affects everyone. It's not isolated just to the West. Um, and, you know, it's, it's probably enjoyed uh, with more distribution in the West, but uh, it, it's affecting absolutely everyone. And you can see that by the fact that there were people who died to put on a soccer tournament, um, lots of people, and nobody, nobody is saying a thing about it. Yeah, thousands and thousands of people. It's, it, it's, it's really, really quite astonishing. I mean, you, you, you add that up, the bribe. I mean, there's so many factors that really just kind of are just totally glaring here. But let's transition to final thoughts. Does anyone want to get us started here? Um, one aspect of the segment in the beginning when I was talking about the marriage bill working its way through the Senate that Emily kind of touched on, but I think is worth exp expounding upon is that, you know, the Republican Senate lost a very winnable midterm. And I think there's a host of reasons why, but one of them is that they failed to capitalize on issues that voters really cared about. And I would argue that, you know, the representative element of their jobs is to stand up for their religiously minded constituents, the people that value traditional marriage or the people that simply just hold these views because they're normal church going people. This is not, you know, having a traditional view about marriage as much as just becoming a dissident to the culture in America, it's not an outrageous opinion. Right. And so I think the fact that the, the Senate Republicans coming back from, you know, 
underperforming in the midterms. And then the first thing they do is 12 of 12 senators break ranks and say, oh, you know, it's fine. <laughs> right. Like we we care so little that we didn't look into this bill at all. And so we think it protects religious liberty, which it doesn't. And we want a virtue signal on this point, uh, you know, about marriage. I, I just think it's that that right there, I think, is case in point of, of why we did not see better performance. And I think we have to get this right. And we currently don't have senators, I think, that see it. The last thing I'll say on that, too, is that my understanding is there was no whip effort at all from the Republican leadership on this point. This was a, oh, you know, vote your conscience. Again, people who didn't even do the due diligence to see what was going on here. And I think that's frankly shameful. Uh, they have the, this bill is only a third of the way through, so hopefully they can get it right in the meantime. Um, but yeah, it was really kind of not not a great comeback vote. We'll say it that way. So I'll be I'll be really brief and return to my special counsel segment. So I just one point that I want to underscore, and you know, obviously we expect this kind of hypocrisy and disingenuousness at this point, but. The, the notion of continuing the weaponization of the DOJ, because as Emily noted, we can go back from Russiagate through today. There's been a perpetual lawfare effort and national security apparatus effort against Trump as a proxy for the tens of millions of voters whose views he represents that are antithetical to those of the ruling class and perceived as an existential threat to the ruling class. This is the ultimate anti-democratic power play when you have, to Rachel's point, a January 6th committee that essentially failed to torpedo Trump. So now you have to continue to try to use the legal apparatus to try and take him down or at minimum interfere with an election where it's up to the voters to decide what's legitimate and not and who should win and who ought not to win, particularly when, again, we're talking about the most novel kinds of legal cases on on their face, at least, relatively mundane issues, um, contesting elections, which do happen all the time, regardless of the manner in which they were contested and all of the issues surrounding it. And obviously, legal scholars on both sides will make their arguments. But these are not slam dunk cases in either case by any stretch. And so consequently, it's incumbent upon a DOJ that actually used prosecutorial discretion that was prudential to say we have no business going into these areas and let the voters decide essentially but instead they're going full bore on with the legal jihad against trump so it's the ultimate anti-democratic power play it allows them to interfere with and manipulate an election in a myriad ways some of which i'm sure we'll see in terms of the one-sided leaking and the like and as the polls move what will the doj do and it opens itself up at very minimum to the appearance of a totally corrupted and politicized doj which we know based upon the substance is, is likely true. Uh, I also wonder, by the way, to the extent there is anything approximating a church committee, a new church committee, how is it going to look at this special counsel and the acts of this Justice Department in real time as it's doing it as the House is doing its oversight duty? Um, the, but the last point I'll make is, you know, for an establishment plus that simply wants the bad orange man to go away and potentially views this as a convenient way to shunt him aside, uh, it's incredibly short-sighted because the fact that our law enforcement apparatus can and will do this means it absolutely will be trained on whoever is next to the extent they create the at least the appearance of potentially being a winner or potentially taking a pa power away 
from our ruling class. And maybe the ruling class assumes that any establishment Republicans in the future will never be a threat to them, either to win or to do anything different from what the Democrat would do to the extent they're in power. But it is hugely short-sighted, even for those who loathe Trump on the Republican side, who want to see him go away forever, to not stand up on principle and fight against this weaponized Justice Department, because the whole system collapses to the extent this persists. And that's where we are right now. So incredibly short-sighted, and they're willing to burn down everything over one man and the millions of icky people that he represents. It's quite a commentary on them. So I will also be brief here. So there is kind of this emerging commentary. Um, there is a a, a piece um, by a less than stellar writer at the left blog known as Vox.com that has kind of taken in its crosshairs um, the broader new right and national conservatism. I think this particular podcast has gotten a shout out um, in this hit piece. And the narrative that some on the left, as well as some of their allies, um, useful idiots, allies, whatever you want to call them, and kind of the classical liberal, kind of right liberal, dead consensus, right? The narrative that I think is slowly starting to build up here is that the new right, that this kind of more nationalist, kind of populist sentiment and so forth is really what kind of doomed the Republican Party uh, in, in this midterm election cycle. And I really think that that is just remarkably, remarkably short-sighted, overly simplistic, totally misses the forest from the trees and so forth. I'm planning to punch back at this. I'm, I'm drafting right now. We'll see when it gets out there. Um, I I'm, I'm kind of cheekily titling um, this piece um, still against the dead consensus as, as, as kind of an inside baseball reference to this is uh, the initial against the dead consensus manifesto from first things in March, 2019. Anyway, um, uh, substantively, I just, I, I just find the I just find the argument that the, the, the new right costs Republicans' election to be just totally oversimplistic. So I mean, we can kind of like very very briefly here, kind of like use a few examples and go state by state. So I mean, let's start in Nevada. I mean, you know, the fact that Adam Laxalt lost his Senate race that, that's terrible. Adam Laxalt would would have been a very good U.S. senator, but Nevada is now one of the swingiest swing states in the country. You know, compare that to what happened to John McCain in two thousand eight and Mitt Romney in twenty twelve. I mean, you know, Republicans were losing there by double digits. So whatever is happening in Nevada, you know, and this kind of a newer kind of a Trump and post-Trump energy is very much helping there. Wisconsin, similar story. Wisconsin is now a legitimate swing state. You know, Wisconsin was a very blue state, frankly, from the end of the Reagan years, you know, from 1988 through 2016. Ditto Pennsylvania. I mean, Rick Santorum was a senator, but Pennsylvania was really not in play, frankly, other than kind of some, you know, ad hoc exceptions like a Rick Santorum for most of those years between George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump. Ohio has gone from a purple state to a to a you know, bright red state. Florida has gone from a purple state to a bright red state. We discussed this on a previous podcast. You know, Ron DeSantis has kind of emerged as, as a formidable culture war figure. He is not running away from those icky kind of new right kind of used government power issues. He very he very much embraces it and in many ways is, is kind of a shining example of it. In doing so, he has won a majority of the Hispanic vote. He has shifted the state from purple to right. So you know, we I, I could go on and on here, and look, that's, th there are any number of of faults, obviously. You know, candidates like Don Baldock, um, you know, Doug Mastriano, clearly, um, you know, uh, did not even come close to winning their elections. Someone who should have been a f truly formidable candidate, someone like like a Carrie Lake, probably spent too much time talking about stop the steal and whatnot. So there's any number of criticisms to make, but this broader kind of philosophical criticism of this populist nationalist energy, I find just to be totally, totally mistaken, and we need to push back on it. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just keep going on that point because I saw interesting math uh, in Axios actually, where they um, showed that Carrie Lake had underperformed with independents, but overperformed with Hispanics. And the overperformance with Hispanics was dramatic. So I think the challenge going forward um, is, and by the way, they attributed that to Katie Hobbs underperforming with Hispanics as opposed to Carrie Lake overperforming, which is funny because we all know what's happening um, is that Hispanic voters are actually shifting. Um, and it, it's not merely because Democrats are underperforming. Um, it's, it's also because Republicans are doing something to earn those votes instead of Hispanics just staying home. Um, and we know that. So uh, the math that has to work out in the future is how Republican candidates can keep independence and also sort of have those uh, do, do very well, continue the inroads with Hispanic voters and uh, other minority voters or non-traditional Republican voters. And there's a pretty clear roadmap to that being done in Florida. So that's not to say, like, to the point of Rachel's New York Times piece today, we like to do the Trump versus DeSantis binary um, in the national conversation, but it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, they're, they're, the DeSantis model is very much like downstream of what Donald Trump did. Ron DeSantis uh, saw what happened in the Trump era and created a new style of Republican leadership to respond to those challenges um, and to respond to what voters were looking for, which is what leaders are supposed to do. Um, so all that is to say, um, you know, it, it's just it's possible and it's not impossible and there there is a roadmap to doing it so the and that doesn't involve by the way either just abandoning everything the new right has said would be you know to Inez Inez loves to say the culture war is the big tent um it doesn't involve totally abandoning that idea in any way whatsoever and it also doesn't involve you know going full like in, insane conspiracy theorist Dominion voting machines being hacked. So uh, there, there is a way forward and it's not just 2012 autopsy moderation. There's, there's a way to do it that's responsible to voters and can actually help get the country on a better track. Well, that's very well said. And uh, on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Rachel, I'm Josh Hammer. We will see you at the next NatCon Squad.